The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The Glenn Beck Program. James Shaw Jr. You remember that name? April 22nd, Nashville Waffle House. The attacker shot and killed four people. If not for Shaw, it would have been much, much worse. He's an amazing American. I don't know the parents of James Shaw Jr. Whoever you are, hold your head high. You raised successfully a Captain America. Somebody fire up the cloning machine. The world needs more human beings like James Shaw Jr. The Glenn Beck Program. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the place, this is the intersection between East and West, the place where you'll find that possibly that Muslim voice you've been looking for, that voice that takes on radical Islam, that only takes on militants, but takes on the core cause, the, the root causes of radicalization, which are political Islam, and I believe a faith interpretation, a dominant faith interpretation that's in long, long overdue for reform. And what I do week to week, for those of you who've not been here before to listen, uh, I try to take the topics of the day and show how a particular strategy, a particular approach a particular lens that you can look through the policies of today, foreign policy, domestic policy, how you interact with your friends, how that can affect a tipping point towards the needed reformation. Now, obviously, this is a generational process, but I do believe in this lifetime, I and you can begin to see what history will look upon as that opportunity in which the West began to rather than just be on the defense against radical Islam, begin to be on the offense to promote liberty into the mindset of Muslims across the world. So, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, you have to, we have to talk about the Iran deal and the fact that President Trump, the Trump administration, and the United States have simply ended it. We've walked away, canceled this gentleman's agreement that the president, uh, previous president, President Obama and his administration had uh, finagled. And uh, ultimately, we're learning that the Constitution has a reason in which treaties have certain processes in which they're written. You can't just bypass Congress. You can't bypass the American people. And then as President Fiat into position, some kind of agreement between a state which is basically our sworn enemy. There is no obligation for subsequent Presidents, there's no obligation for subsequent presidents to abide by those agreements, and elections have consequences. So, you know, I hear all the finagling on the left that, uh, and even President Obama and his staff have been had the temerity this week to tweet and say that this is being done simply because President Obama got the deal done, and it's simply being done to destroy his legacy. And I'm sorry, this is not about you, Mr. Narcissistic President, former President Barack Obama. I think there's nothing better to a coherent Middle Eastern policy than the end of an agreement that had all the hallmarks of every liability known in confrontation of our enemies and had absolutely none to little 
little to none benefits for the American people in security. And we can get into the details of the JCPOA agreement, uh, the joint um, agreement between parties that were involved. And yeah, certainly, yeah, we've heard this week all the protestations from Europe. I'm sorry, I can't take any of them seriously. Why? Because the European countries, number one, have had eight years in which they have led us President Obama has led, had led from behind, as has been said so frequently, in which they simply allowed their own kleptocratic interests, in which now they see the markets of Iran. It's not really free markets. It is a governmental market of theocrats with significant Russian intervention that they wanted to open up to their special pet businesses including Airbus and all the other, and even including in the United States, Boeing. And I can't tell you how refreshing it is to see that come to end. Because if you believe in human rights, I don't care if you're a conservative or a liberal, if you truly believe in the advocacy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, then businesses that were seeking to open up markets with a regime in Tehran that is one of the worst offenders of human rights globally is not money made on moral means. It's made from the backs of a regime that is horrifically against human rights. Now, some would try to say, well, look at China, uh, that uh, ultimately the opening of an economy can liberalize it. I think China is a very, very separate example, talking about over a billion people. I do believe, though, that in history it's shown that there's very little correlation between the economic opening of a society and the subsequent revolutions that may happen against their, their governments if they are true dictatorships and tyrannies, that ultimately the end of the tyranny came from containment, came from sanctioning, came from economic collapse of that government in which the people then were able to revolt, able to be heard and had the, back, the backdrop of the rest of humanity to protect them and, and, and speak on their behalf. So... The first thing I want to bring to your mind as we look at this, I think, very wise exit from the Iran deal is let's first look at the trajectory of revolution. People are saying that, well, the naysayers are saying that pulling this out, well, now simply we paid all the money up front and now the deal which had the benefits of keeping Iran on a certain inspection scale, etc., is all going to go away and we had a breakout time of one year and now it's quickly going to go down to two to three months in which their breakout time and development of a nuclear weapon will be shortened. And let's set aside for a second one of the major important points of the nuclear deal is whether it was transparent, whether Iran was actually meeting what it said it would. Some said it did. Many said it didn't. I'd ask you to read Ambassador John Bolton's piece in the National Review months ago. Now he's our national security advisor, and and uh, he laid out why they had clearly violated the agreement. But regardless of what you think about whether they violated it or not, there is a trajectory that I think cannot be ignored. And that trajectory is to look at what the Iranian people have been saying. The revolution in 2009 was abandoned by President Obama. Why? Because he had begun negotiations about the nuclear deal. And at the altar of the nuclear deal, he sacrificed 
any accountability for the Iranian regime for the human rights abuses against their own people. And he sacrificed the, the belligerent spread of radicalism and violence into the region and terror by the Iranian regime in the region simply at the altar of the nuclear deal. I'm going to get to that in the next segment. But what I want to talk about in right now that I think is the most important thing is the trajectory in which you had the Bush administration that had a sanctions regime and, and for decades we have been trying to contain the Iranian economy and that slowly led to a point in which they began to have revolutions. The revolution in 2009, the Green Revolution was about economic change. Come the nuclear deal, you then in 2015 the revolution had been stomped out by the regime. The West started to ignore everything at the altar of the nuclear deal. 2015 then comes. We sign the agreement for whatever it's worth. And they receive $150 billion. Their economy gets an influx. Not the economy to the people, but the economy of the military state and the terror state of the tyranny of the Khomeinist regime. And it gives them a second life. Now, come the Trump administration, the people are seeing that there's been a shift in the appeasement, not only in Iran, but a reality of red lines in Syria. You see people chanting in the street that we're sick of a government that cares more about screaming death to Israel, death to America, but doesn't care about our own people. We, we, we are sick of a government that's sending billions to kill Syrians, that's sending billions to threaten Israel with Hezbollah in sponsor of terror. And we want a government of the people for the people of Iran. And they're marching in the towns of the theocratic strongholds in Qom and other cities in Iran. And that happened just this year. So, I would tell you the trajectory is that the way the Iran deal went suppressed the revolution. As it went away and the sanctions regime came in, the revolution was driven. So it doesn't, Iran is going to be emboldened to be a bad actor every day of the week, seven days a week, 24-7 every day. So don't tell me that, and listen, I am the, the, the son of Syrian immigrants, the grandson of, of political reformers in, in Syria, judicial reformers in Syria. And I can tell you the tribal mindset of military dictatorships, be it Arab secular dictators or theocratic dictators, is that they only respond to strength, they only respond to fear, and that they will bully anyone they can and, and destroy them violently unless they get pushed back and fear that their own existence is threatened. And this is why the revolution in Iran had started to get some traction because they started to withdraw tons of money from banks, which is what the citizens were doing and were trying to break the economy in Iran. And this is why they shut down Telegram. They shut down a number of communication mechanisms between the thousands upon thousands that were rallying for support. Well, this week with the Iran deal exit, the revolution, I want you to look at the hashtag, thank you, Mr. Trump. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Just look at that hashtag and you will see a, a, a litany 
of Muslims, mostly Iranian Muslims, expatriates and patriots in Iran and others who are thanking President Trump for exiting the Iran deal. Why would that be? And you look, it's all about those who want freedom, those who want to see the end of the regime. They quickly realized that the infusion of cash, the infusion of businesses was simply propping up the regime. So the trajectory of what the deal did was not in America's interests. It emboldened, empowered our enemies to continue wreaking havoc in the region. It's not just about long-range missiles in there. The, the focus on one little element, which was, now it's not little, obviously a nuclear Iran is a disaster, but that mono, th that myopic view of Iran's threat to the region and globally at the expense of all its other threats, ideological, with radical Khomeinism and, it, and its Shia Islamism, with its spread of short and, and mid-range missiles to the border of Israel, to Syria, to Hezbollah. Now we saw, only days at, a, a day after, a declaration that we were going to withdraw from the deal. You saw missiles launched into Israel. Now, people try to say, oh, that's because of the deal that happened. Well, listen, they're testing. They're testing the waters to see the resolve. And I think now we have our allies are more emboldened to defend themselves and to push back. And I think in the long, short and long term, we're going to see a more secure Middle East, a more stable Middle East. There may be some military conflict here or there. But at the end of the day, containing all of the elements of Iran will empower the revolution, will empower our allies, our real allies, and begin to weaken the regime that should be a sanctions regime. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. It is always an honor to be with you, talk to you about the issues of the day related to foreign policy, domestic policy, and protecting our country against the threat of radical Islam, political Islam, theocratic Islam, uh, a, a manifestation that grows out of a faith of a quarter of the world's population that I believe if we're on the right side of history, we will begin to play a role in leaving a legacy that looks at bringing Islam through a reformation process, similar, not exactly the same, but similar to what Jeffersonian democracy, to what Locke and others saw in a Western society that brought out universal human rights, rejected theocracy, lived under God, and celebrated and practiced their love of their faith in the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm talking this week about the Iran deal. What can we learn from it? I think the second I talked to you about how we learned that it's not about emboldening Iran. That's not the reason we shouldn't have pulled out. The reason we should have pulled out, which we did, is to embolden the, the, those who are on the right side of history and to empower the revolution. That's number one. Number two, 
Syria. And again, I'm not just telling you this because I'm Syrian. I get it because I'm Syrian. Not only ask Syrians, ask people in the region. Ask your friends in Israel. Ask your friends in the Sunni world who want in the future to bring democracy, but first want stability in the region. They will tell you that there was absolutely no way to stabilize Syria with Iran in Syria. With the colonization of Iran, of, of, of Syria by Iran, with the loss of Iraq to Iran, ultimately now the first step was pulling out of that Iran deal, which basically gave them a free reign to do what they want. It was a green light into Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. And now that green light has turned yellow. And now the next step is to turn it red. How do you turn it red? We begin to shore up our previous relationships with the Kurds, which I am actually quite saddened that for all perceptions, it appears that we are abandoning our Kurdish friends. And I think that'll change now with Secretary of State Pompeo, with National Security Advisor Bolton. I think that'll change because there's no one who is more vocally pro-Kurdish than those two individuals. But we'll see. So we shore up our Kurdish allies. We, we begin to realize that the decimation of ISIS was not the end of our interests in Syria. That ultimately ISIS was a byproduct of an equal and opposite reaction to Shia extremism from the Assad regime, fueled, empowered, and acted and military ex militarily executed by the Iran Khomeinists. So how do you push back against them without going to full out war? I think ultimately you begin to arm those who may share our values. It's gonna it's much 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 harder to find today than it was in eleven and twelve when the revolution began before ISIS existed. And it's even harder than fourteen and fifteen when ISIS was growing, but yet there were some factions that we, I think, could have supported. Are there elements of Islamists that are not ISIS that are against us? Absolutely. We should not support them. I heard recently that the Trump administration ended support of the White Helmets. Are the White Helmets 100% humanitarian? Some of them may not be. But the vast majority of them are doing God's work in Syria. And I think a Syria in which America is not taking some sides is a Syria that will even be more hellish than it is today. It's not about an all or none and that if, we, if it happens to go further in the wrong direction that somehow our involvement would make it worse. A lack of involvement, if there's anything the last seven years of the Syrian revolution has proven that a lack of involvement by America has been the worst of all worlds. Helping tip the needle in some areas in Syria towards those groups that may have a vision for secular democracy, pluralistic Syria, uh, that I think is the future. And I think we begin as, as the Iranian policy goes. And there's been folks from Eli Lake to Josh Rogan and the Washington Post to others that have been writing this week that the silver lining, regardless of what you believe about the Iran deal, pulling out of the Iran deal will force, if this is going to work, a better policy in Syria against Iran. 
because it'll include not only a sanctions regime against them, but it will include a sophisticated coalition that will begin to contain Iran that will necessitate hopefully pushing the right buttons against Russia to make it too expensive for them to continue to prop up Iran and hopefully beginning to also tell the Shia militants in Iraq that we will not stand for them attacking our allies, be they Kurdish or Sunni soldiers and, and citizens that we have spent billions of our blood and treasure in order to free them of the of the wrath of Saddam Hussein in 2003 and on. So, so as our Iranian policy goes, Syrian policy goes. And we're going to need to come to that understanding, and I hope the Trump administration begins to articulate the connection between the two. I think ultimately... There's no doubt. Good riddance to the Iran deal. It was a nightmare. It weakened us. And it's time for America to lead from the front, not from behind. Regardless of what Germany and the UK and France decide to do, they may fluster around a bit, but I think they'll come around. You can't, with a straight face, defend the crimes against humanity pushed domestically and regionally by the Iranian regime. You can't prevent the deployment of short and mid-range missiles to terror groups like Hezbollah and the Assad regime without a forceful containment, short of military, but forceful economically and in a coalition containment of the spread of the Iranian belligerents. So, you know, listen, I think we've come back from outer space. Our policy with Iran was so homenophilic, I, I could not even comprehend in my mind why the Obama administration was so in love with the radicals of Iran. It made, made no sense to me. And I'm sorry, you may find that extreme, that he was just sort of doing a real politique. And I think the American people should be offended. I could not believe there were not more stories this week about how un-American it was for former, former Secretary of State John Kerry to go around and have back channel. And I say back channel, that's a State Department term. That's what happens when real diplomats that are in position today, voted in by the American people, participate in diplomacy. Former Secretary of States cannot participate unless they are asked by the current administration to do so as envoys. Nowhere was Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Kerry asked to be an envoy. In fact, God knows what he told them. And I hope our intelligence apparatus was monitoring those meetings and had feedback on exactly what Secretary John Kerry said during those meetings and then releases them later when it, the time is safe to do so. Well, we'll come back. We've come back from outer space. We were in outer space in which we thought that somehow appeasement of the Khomeinis was going to work. We were in outer space when we thought that opening up companies and businesses in Tehran would somehow make them realize the light of their ideas. No, revolution. Helping the revolution in Iran not through military intervention, but simply helping a nascent revolution grow is going to be the best weapon against the Iranian weaponization of nuclear material.
the trove of Israeli documents that was an unbelievable get by the Mossad in Iran, released last week, shows deep details of an abandonment of the agreement that supposedly they were keeping. So I think it's a new era. I think regardless of how we may sometimes disagree with the articulation of the policy that President Trump had, by every stretch of the imagination, this was a good week for a recalibration of America leading in the world. And the only way you make any progress against tyrants like the Khomeinis is that they should fear us and not simply look to embrace us, which will never happen as they start apps on their phones called Death to America. Yes, there was an app on the phone released to smartphones from Tehran by the government to build the network of the Khomeinis, of the that 10% of their population that are believers in the Khomeinis movement. They released it to connect them for communications of death to America. Talk about governmental radicalization of the people, that's it. So, I think we can, the Iranian people are breathing easier. Yes, there may be some stressors along the way, but peace through strength is the only solution against genocidal war criminal leaders like the Khomeini's regime. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Necessities. We have to give them shelter, food, water, and medicine. I disagree, but there's an argument to be made. But there is no argument for any reasonable person to say somebody breaks into a country and on top of all that other stuff you've given them, we're going to give you free or discounted college at taxpayer expense. The Morning Blaze, weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Week to week, you and I together... I think breach, we try to breach those lines between the East and West, between the Islamist theocrats and the West land of freedom and liberal democracy. We talked about Iran the last two segments, and I hope be the beginning of a conversation of how we can use the power of the largest platform of freedom on the planet, which is the United States of America, to effectuate change to not appease tyranny, and to uh, to represent and stand with principles that we believe. That simply allowing our fear of a nuclear Iran to monopolize and dominate how we deal with them ignores all the other aspects of their society, from human rights to conventional weapons and others, that I think ultimately blurred the picture and prevented the key stimulus for reform. So when you talk about stimulus for reform, now I want to shift to a conversation with my fellow Muslims. And I think it's important for everybody to hear this conversation, but to my fellow Muslims, and as every faith group, 
if you love your faith and you stick with your faith, you want to see it respected. You want to see it embodied in the way you practice your own faith, the way you embody integrity, faithfulness, grace, humanity, and morality, and your ethics and values. And if you claim and report to be a Muslim, then people can learn the most about your faith through your behavior, through your character, and through your actions. So if you look at the actions of humanity, I've talked a lot on this program about what the militants do to the message of Islam and that if we really love our faith, we would counter the root causes of radicalization. But I think there's a recent story that's been coming out now. I saw one published this week about the Turks, similar story in Saudi Arabia. I've talked to you about the story out of Iran in that just those three countries, each one run by a different flavor of radical theocracy, has seen huge surges in the last 10, 20 years in the numbers turning to atheism. Not even just going from Islam to Christianity to Judaism, whatever it might be. They're rejecting God as a result of what they see. Faithful people who claim to be Islamic, meaning Islamic is an adjective for anything that has a characteristics of Islam. Islamist is a theopolitical movement that believes the national identity of the faith should be the national identity of the state, that they're one and the same, and the government should be run by Sharia versus secular liberal law. Muslim are those who practice the faith of Islam, and ultimately Islam means submission. Submission. The Islamists would like you to submit to their government, which they believe is God. I believe, as a secular, free-thinking Muslim that rejects theocracy, but loves my faith, I believe that submission is what you do only to God, and that you do that after you've done everything to maximize your free will on this earth. And then, if you still, God forbid, get cancer, you still fail, you then have to submit to the will of God because things just are not in our control. And it's no different, I think, if you read the books of rabbis who've written about why bad things happen to good people, why uh, the, the, one of the most common questions in humanity, we ultimately resolve that in the end by saying, God only knows and we submit to his will. Why do I say all this? Well, recent studies said that, uh, uh, for example, if you look at teachers and students and others, uh, in the 16 years in Turkey that Recep Erdogan party has been in power, the number of religious high schools across Turkey has increased more than tenfold. He has talked about bringing up a pious generation. But now in the past few weeks, the pious youngsters, the millennials in Turkey, have been moving away from religion. And the BBC recently had a report talking about why there are more and more saying that, and they've been reported talking about, as they pray day to day, five times a day as Muslims, 
They said, I thought I would either go crazy or kill myself. The next day I realized I had lost my faith. And she became an atheist. Stories go on and on. Look up atheism in Saudi Arabia. And you'll see it's one of the most underground movements in the planet because of the many red lines. One of the, most, one of the ones that's the brightest in Syria is that if you publicly talk about leaving God, leaving Islam, you will pay a heavy price, which includes beheading, torture, imprisonment, and death. So, their answer to that is that this is how they prevent treason. So, when the state's identity is Islamic, you leave Islam and the constitution of Islam is the Qur'an, you have basically committed sedition or blasphemy against the Qur'an, and by leaving it, you've committed apostasy or treason against the state, so they kill you. So, my message to my fellow Muslims is, how do you change all that? Do you really think that we are going to if you care about the legacy of your children, who are not going to be always listening to the message of Islam from the laundered verbiage of your own mouths, but are going to be hearing it from other millennials, are going to be hearing it from YouTube, from Press TV in Iran, from ISIS journals, from theocratic journals, the Muslim Student Association, all the different alphabet soup of religious organizations, be they theocratic, secular, illiberal, or, or fundamentalist. So, regardless of how seriously or how deeply you take your own faith, what institutions are we developing that create an identity of Islam which is not simply built upon the monopolization of society and the overreach of faith beyond simply a message between an individual and God, but the overreach into a mandate for society, for the family, for the neighborhood, and thus it becomes an oppressive influence that thus forces every individual to say, that can't be a good thing. When I get coerced or forced or tortured into believing something, that is not a merciful God. We in Islam talk about the 99 names of God. Most of them are positive and loving. Beneficent, omnipotent, merciful, compassionate. All of these names of God are names that reinforce the centrality in our lives, but also the humility and the minimal nature in which we each as individuals are in front of God. So, you can sit down and talk about atheism being this exaggerated narcissism in which people reject the existence of God and that makes them God because they don't have direct proof of the existence of a greater power. That might be an important conversation in the ivory tower halls of universities. But at the end of the day, there is a cultural mindset that is being fueled by the theocrats that is repelling Muslims from their faith. 
To those of you who are non-Muslim, I think this conversation may apply, obviously, in your own faiths, much less so since the Christian Reformation saw a, a significant evolution away from the hell and brimstone message towards the real message of loving compassion of Jesus Christ. And if you look at most of the language of Reformation, shifted the conversation from the church to being one of fear and hellfire to being one of love, compassion, and embracing every human, and even near pacifism of turning the other cheek. And that's the way compassion and humility and integrity is spread. So I can tell you that the number one reason I do this work is I believe that my love of country that gives me the ability to do this program, to raise my family, my love of country believes that if Muslims don't get this right, America will suffer in the future a significant threat to its security from a quarter of the world's population that would be be dominated by theocrats. So because of my love of America, I want to defuse and defeat the theocratic threat. But secondarily, I care about my kids' identification with their faith. I care about my own faith because it's a reflection of the choices I have made in my life. And I want my legacy to be about the fact that my choices in my life were made to adopt a faith that was rational, that was reasonable, and had interpretations that were legitimate that I had made through an educated understanding of not only my scripture, but my tradition and history. And where I saw fault in it, I expressed it, corrected it, and tried to convince others within my faith of the rationale of that to make it a more predominant, a more established interpretation of that faith. So look at the rates in which Muslims are leaving their faith. And if you love your faith as a Muslim, I don't care what you think about my ideas and and how you may reject some of the ideas I put forth here and elsewhere in my work. You can't think that the current Islamists, and you can blame it on dictatorships and get into conspiracy theories that, oh, it's the West's fault because they prop up these dictators. Uh, there would be a plethora of modern interpretations of Sharia that separate mosque and state, and there just aren't. There's many, but there's just, it's a minor minority. So the reality has got to be that we begin to understand that the atheism conversion rate is a sign of the illness, of the cancer that is spreading within the Muslim community. Be it things that are Islamic, be it the Islamist threat, be it the Muslim identity, or be it things that are identified with the Islam that we love or the version of Islam that we reject, like the Wahhabi version or a lot of the Salafi version. Thank you for letting me take the few minutes to talk about that. This is Zudi Jaster. We'll be right back with our last segment on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. 
It's insanity. I hate this spin. The top 1% are going to control 66% of the world's wealth if we don't stop them with communism. This is like a bakery. Bake your own pie. It's not just a pie. Go bake more. The ingredients are all contained in a free market system. Put them together and come up with your pie, stupid. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment of Reform This this week. Um, I was talking to you about Muslims who are leaving their faith in large numbers. And uh, the stories about that are increasing. So what can we do to make the, re- the, real- the reality of what Islam is and is not more commensurate with a faith that has come to terms with modernity. I've talked to you about this before, but a few weeks ago on April 21st, 300 prominent French signed a manifesto that appeared in the Daily Le Parisien, signed by prominent intellectuals, politicians, former President Nicolas Sarkozy, Prime Minister Manuel Valls, And it made a shocking demand. It argued that the Quran incites violence. It insisted that the verses of the Quran calling for murder and punishment of Jews, Christians, and non-believers be struck to obsolescence by religious authorities so that no believer can refer to a sacred text to commit a crime. So, some have interpreted, and I'm not sure what they mean by struck to obsolescence. I mentioned this a few episodes ago, and I wanted to close the circle on this. If struck to obsolescence means if struck to obsolescence means that you simply relegate it, you abrogate it and say that it no longer applies to today. It's a passage of one of the passages in the Quran that doesn't have a indefinite uh, expiration date. Just like the passages, I think, that relate to certain battles, etc., then I agree with that. But if struck to obsolescence, and this is what many interpreted, and maybe this is the Islamists that intentionally interpreted this, there were a couple Muslim imams that signed it, and I'm in the process of trying to find them and communicate with them because I want to know whether they're talking about removing those passages. Because, listen, Islam within its constructs has a certain approach like DNA to the scripture, the commas, the dots, the sentencing, the the ayat, the narration of the Quran. Quran itself, the word means recitation. You could, God forbid, try to remove the scripture, the books of the Quran, And yet the numbers of people that have memorized it would force it to live on. So I think it's not only foolhardy, it's contravailing to my understanding of the one of the few things that I think defines the Islam. And I say few things because we have no clergy. So when it comes to defining what makes a Muslim a Muslim, 
That you could even have a hard time agreeing on. What does it make a Muslim a Muslim? Most Muslims would say, well, simply saying the shahada. You say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu an Muhammadan Rasulullah. I believe that there is no God but God, and the Prophet Muhammad is his messenger. And that makes you a Muslim. You may not know anything of the Quran, have never read it, and yet just by saying that you become a Muslim. So there's not that many details to the process of converting into Islam. So yet there has to be an intellectual rigor in which you say, well, this is what defines a Muslim. And the closest I've been able to get, I think, across the Muslim population, whether they're liberal, fundamentalist, whatever it might be, is that the definition of a Muslim, be it Shia, Sunni, whatever it might be, is somebody who believes that the recitation or the Qur'an in Arabic is the word of God. That somebody who believes in the authenticity of the Qur'an, now, does that mean that if somebody believes that a certain passage might not be real, does that make them not a Muslim? No, I'm not telling you this to get into the business of takfir or deciding who is and who is not a Muslim. But we also have to have a realistic way of approaching how Muslims who gather together, what are the things we would put in the same bucket that we all agree on? And I think one of the things 99.9% .9 of Muslims would put into that bucket is obviously number one being the belief in the God of Abraham and the prophets after him, after Abraham, but also the authenticity of the scripture of the Qur'an. And then we can get into all the other parts of the belief, be it the Injil, the Bible, or the Torah, or the Old Testament, etc. But the authenticity of the Arabic script of the Quran is important. So if you're going to reform, let's look at polygamy. There's obviously a passage in the Quran that says that it is okay for, for men to marry more than one wife, up to four wives. Now, I have actually never met a Muslim male who believes, not only, I've never met one that's married to more than one wife, I've never met one who believes that that would be appropriate. And they'll give you an apologetic response and say that, well, because you can't treat them equally, or that really applied in the 7th century to a time in which the ratio was so high, etc. You find some apologetic that explains why in 615 CE, in which that passage came out, in which the prophet recited it, that that may have made sense. And this is in backward cultures like Saudi Arabia. They still have monarchs and kings who have 10, 12 wives and claim to not have more than four. And yet they're polyg polygamists. I think they're a polygamist cult, the House of Saud. But at the end of the day, that passage, I believe, is in the Quran. I would never call for the removal of it. I just call for it to be made obsolete, that it no longer applies because of the advancement in society. So I think just as we advance in society with medical science, with computer science, and we do things that might exceed the understandings in the Qur'an that would be detailed, that we found that as human beings, if you truly believe in the equality of men and women, you cannot allow one sex to be married to multiple of the other sex.
no matter how hard you try to make that equal. And I think that is an example in which the Muslim community has, by its own actions and apologetics, relegated certain passage to history without, God forbid, ripping it from the Quran. So I think ultimately, if you look at the conversation that the French are having, it's a great conversation. It's about how can we look at not the authenticity, but the relevance of certain passages and its application. Why don't we take certain passages and put indelible markers around the time in history that it applied? So a passage that referred to the battle against Badr, the battle of Badr against the Jewish tribe of Ben Qurayza, the details of that conflict should not apply to anything except that simple battle. Just because the tribe happened to be Jewish doesn't make then the profiling of all Jews appropriate by the anti-Semites that want to use that passage for their own purposes. So, I think this is a great process and this is exactly what needs to happen. I like the courage of many of the leaders in France that have said, you know what, this is not just a Muslim problem, this is something we need to lead with and empower Muslims that are reformers, and that's exactly what the French are doing. Now, I hope it's being led by, by Muslims. I didn't get that sense from reading that manifesto. And I think that's another aspect of it. I've talked to you about the need to have a commission on radical Islam, radical Islamism. And if you're going to have that commission, I would hope reform-minded Muslims would lead that. And that ultimately, those Muslims would begin to play a role in creating platforms in which the free world can begin to brand and provide a voice for reform-minded Muslims that have been suffocated at the feet and the boots of military regimes from Saudi Arabia to Iran to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, and Syria, and on. So take a look at what the French are doing. I think an American version of that, which celebrates religion more, which ultimately begins to look at it through the lens of religious liberty as the first freedom, I think will be more powerful, but every country in the West will probably have its own permutation of this, and it's time for America to wake up. Wake up to the need to start to lead reform-minded Muslims into taking care of their own house of Islam. God bless you all. This is Zudi Jasser. I'll see you next week on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.